0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Scotland Matters, the Scottish Land and Estates podcast. I'm Carmen McPherson, Membership Communications Manager at SLE. Later on, I'll provide you with a reminder about our upcoming flagship annual conference and how to submit your nominations for the Helping It Happen Awards 2023. But first, on the 15th of February, Nicola Sturgeon, then First Minister of Scotland and leader of the Scottish National Party, announced her intention to stand down from both positions. The weeks that followed saw a leadership debate, which would eventually culminate in Hamza Yousaf becoming the new First Minister and leader of the SNP. In this episode, you'll hear from Sarah-Jane Leng, Chief Executive of Scottish Land and Estates, in conversation with our Press and Public Affairs Manager, Simon Ritchie, discussing our new First Minister, his appointed Scottish Cabinet, what this may mean for rural Scotland and our plans going forward as we build introductory political relationships and strengthen our existing ones.
1: So Simon, they say that a week is a long time in politics, but when it comes to Scottish politics it feels like an hour is a long time in politics. My goodness, there's an awful lot to talk about. But shall we start by just hearing some views on the appointment of the First Minister, what that means for Rural Scotland, and then we can get into some discussions about cabinet ministerial posts and all things that will affect SLE members.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It has indeed been a big week. And obviously, Hamza Youssef is just finding his feet. He's only been in the job a matter of days. And I think it would be remiss to not comment on the departure of Nicola Sturgeon at this point. She's been at the top of Scottish politics for about 16 years as Deputy First Minister and then as First Minister, eight and a half years in that role. So Scottish politics without Nicola Sturgeon in a front-bench role, is almost unimaginable. He has, in some ways, big shoes to fill, although Hamza did say throughout the campaign that he is his own man and he wants to make his own mark on the party and on policy. So we'll see how that takes shape over the coming weeks and months.
1: As you say, you know, it's very different. You know, we've all got very used to to seeing Nicola Sturgeon kind of front and centre. And regardless of your views on Nicola Sturgeon or on the SNP, that change is unsettling for everybody. So what does the change of First Minister kind of mean for rural Scotland? What are the the clues that we're getting? I mean, Hamza did engage with us during the, the First Ministerial election yep. process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he set out some key targets for, for rural Scotland. What did he say at the time?
2: So, yeah, we wrote to all three candidates to give them a chance, an equal chance to respond to us. So remember, there was Hamza Yusuf, there was Kate Forbes and there was Ash Regan. And as it happened, Hamza was the only one who responded to us. Although, to be fair, it was a very short campaign and they would have all been very busy. So the kind of stuff that Hamza talked about, when we asked him what he would do differently for rural Scotland, he talked about things like addressing the problem of depopulation in rural communities. So he recognises that there's labour shortages and talked about a rural visa pilot and expanding that. He also at least acknowledged that there's a particular problem of housing, a shortage of housing in rural areas, and talked about some of his ideas about how he could tackle that. He talks about the cost of energy, and um, which is really hitting households and businesses really, really hard, especially in rural communities where so many people are off-grid. He's talked about pausing the deposit return scheme for a year, which would be probably, I think most commentators would agree, a welcome move, certainly from a business perspective he's talked about the importance of public transport and working with bodies like the South Scotland Enterprise to, to boost business. So he certainly promised a lot of very positive sounding things, but actions speak louder than words. And I think it's early days.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. And, and I think one of the things which may concern SLE members and, and others in rural areas was his very open support for the coalition with Scottish Greens and his commitment to the the Bute House Agreement. Mm. I think during the, the campaign he described the relationship as, as being like gold dust, mm. you know, leaving us in, in no doubt just how much importance he places on that. And, you know, I think we'll probably pick it up again mm. when we look at the kind of cabinet makeup, but the you know the greens are back at not quite at the top table, mm. um, but they are certainly very, very influential in terms of, of, of Hamza Yusuf's thinking. One of the things which has has been levied at, at Mr. Yusuf's is his lack of knowledge or his lack of connection with, with rural areas. And do you think he's addressed that in the appointment of his, his cabinet ministers? Again, time will
2: tell. Just having a look at some of the appointments. So in rural affairs the slightly revamped role of rural affairs, land reform and islands at cabinet level, we've got Marie Gujon, So there's a level of continuity there. We know that Marie Goujon is a very capable cabinet secretary, haven't been in that role before. We have a relationship with her. She understands the sector. So that's a positive thing. We've also seen Mary McAllen promoted to a key cabinet role as cabinet secretary for net zero and just transition. So these are some of the appointments that he's made. Very capable people, put into roles which have a huge bearing on rural communities in rural Scotland. He certainly recognised the need for talent in those roles, but I suppose it's not so much about personalities and, and more about policy. The criticism that's been levelled at Hamza Yusuf certainly is, and this came up during the campaign, and a lot of commentators both within and out with the SNP have remarked on this, that he was seen as the continuity candidate of Nicola Sturgeon. And so many people spoke of a need to reset the relationship between the Scottish government and business, which seems to have not soured, but perhaps not been as strong as it could have been in recent years. And it remains to be seen whether he is able to step up in that way. I think it's probably fair to say that the candidate, you know, who was from a rural constituency, Kate Forbes, who's now actually left government, probably would have understood, maybe instinctively understood rural Scotland and rural needs a bit better. That's not to say that we shouldn't give Humzae's a chance. Absolutely we should. again, I would say actions speak louder than words. It's probably a little bit too soon to start drawing conclusions about where he stands in rural Scotland.
1: I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, during the campaign, I think um, many people who live and work in in rural Scotland possibly were looking to Kate Forbes in in terms of the next First Minister. They had a connection there. They felt that she understood the issues that faced them, whether that was in in terms of transport, housing, or as you say, in, in terms of the business sector. And the wider business sector had built up a lot of respect for, for Katie Forbes in their dealings with her. And she was parachuted in to deal with the, the fallout post-Eric Mackay and did that on a very, very able basis. Mm. I think one of the things that's quite interesting, I, I, I do think, you know, Hamza Yusuf might, be regretting describing himself as the continuity candidate given the the challenges which you know that the SNP is is facing mm-hmm. and but certainly as you see that kind of reset that reset with business we're not seeing much in the way of of that in the cabinet and it does feel you know looking at cabinet roles that business and the economy doesn't feel as though it is a major priority for the first minister. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that's worth highlighting is the kind of geographical spread I'm trying to see who's, you know, who's the most northerly. There's definitely a a, a Dundee cluster, mm-hmm. but we've not got much, you know, much above that in terms of that that cabinet, and we've not really got a, a kind of feeling that this is, this is a cabinet which is geographically representative of the of the whole of Scotland. Is that fair?
2: I do think that's fair, actually. You know, one of the things that the SNP has often been criticised for in the past is this kind of central beltism that's not a phrase that I just coined that's a phrase I've heard by other commentators and I think it is justified to an extent although you know Mary McAllen she represents uh, Clydesdale and I think you know she does she has rural large rural areas in her constituency as some of some some of the larger towns as well like and Lanark. Mary Goujon she's up in uh, Angus North and Mearns so again quite a rural constituency so I think it is definitely reassuring that the two people, the two cabinet secretaries who will be working on rural issues, do instinctively perhaps have that that rural dynamic, that knowledge.
1: As you say, two very very able women and, and two people who have you know very very strong links to to rural Scotland up there with with some big jobs, and you know Mary McAllen, uh, cabinet secretary for for Net Zero given the Scottish Government's recent assessment they received and their lack of progress Mm. towards net zero, that's a massive job. I'm glad to say it's one that Scottish Land and States members are able to play a a real role as delivery partners in helping the Scottish Government, and I'm sure Ms Macallan will will recognise that, but my goodness, we're a long way away from achieving the statutory targets that the Scottish uh, Government so ambitiously set a few years ago. Mm
2: -hmm. I think, yeah, absolutely, I, I agree with that. You know, we have regular meetings with Mary McAllen and and certainly in her previous role as Minister for Environment and Land Reform. And we always stress to her, and I'm sure she accepts that we are, we do see ourselves as delivery partners um, on the climate crisis, but also on the biodiversity crisis, as well as balancing land use for all the other things that we need it to do, like, you know, provide homes and the tourism sector and produce food, something as fundamental as that. So I think she gets it.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. As, as you say, I, I, I really do feel that when we have conversations with with both her and, and, and Ms Guisham. Um, Other thing that's worth highlighting, I think, in terms of the Cabinet is the elevation of the wellbeing economy. So now this is a Cabinet, um, cabinet Secretary role, wellbeing, economy, food, work, and energy, and, and Neil grace in that post. But Simon, what excellent timing for, for SLE in terms of the work that we've been doing recently, the first sectoral a body to, to look at the contribution uh, towards the wellbeing economy and um, I'm hoping that that opens the door for us in terms of discussions with Neil Gray to continue those we were having with the, the junior minister um, Tom Arthur previously. What What's your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah I mean Neil Gray is again another very capable person to have in the cabinet at that level and yeah it's extremely fortuitous timing. Um, in February we brought out our report the contribution of rural estates to Scotland's wellbeing economy. And that's a piece of work that SLE did in conjunction with Bigger Economics and our colleague in policy team, Sarah Madden, led on that. It's a fantastic piece of work that really uh, illustrates the, the scale and variety of the contribution that rural businesses, and estates make to the well-being economy. As you'll recall, Hamza Yusuf spoke repeatedly about the well-being economy in his leadership bit. And just the appointment of Neil Gray there to, you know, putting that well-being economy front and centre in his cabinet. I think gives us some real leverage to to engage. It's now a government priority, this wellbeing economy concept. So we are extremely well placed, I think, as an organisation to to drive that forward.
1: Yeah, hopefully open some doors to you know to discussions with ministers and others who who maybe aren't as aware of of you know the role of Scottish Land and Estates and its members as you know as Mary McAllen and and uh, Mary Kijon and others. I think the other thing, just to kind of highlight, of course, whether it's the wellbeing economy or the journey towards net zero and that just transition, the thing I go back to again is what underpins that is viable businesses, Mm -hmm. you know, and a a really healthy business economy. And in my view, you can't have a wellbeing economy, you can't deliver net zero unless the businesses which are fundamental to that delivery are are thriving. Mm And as I say, you know, a plea to Mr Youssef and his cabinet to make sure that the economy isn't lost in terms of future priorities. Yeah.
2: I mean, the Scottish Government themselves have identified a huge funding gap. The private sector is absolutely needed. If uh, we've got any chance of meeting these goals on net zero, And there is a huge investment gap. And I think that's that's recognised, certainly recognised by Marianne McCallan, who introduced principles for natural capital investment to Parliament last year. It's looking promising.
1: Yeah. And you know, that that private investment, as you say, to deliver on some of these and that, you know, the partnerships between business and government and making sure that we're not just looking to the public sector to to solve all the issues that we face.
2: Particularly in the current climate.
1: Uh, uh, Absolutely. And you know, that that kind of takes us neatly on, I think, probably to the the, the junior ministers. And sadly, Lanaguan doesn't have any. And you know, when you look at the size of her portfolio not just in terms of policy development, but looking at the bills which were due to come through Parliament in the next wee while. I mean, we've we all got Simon. So we've
2: got the land reform bill that uh, now comes under her remit. We have got the ag bill. Yeah. Um. She'll have a climate change plan update. Yeah. Uh, as And the, uh, the wildlife management. Yeah, the, the wildlife growth management
1: bill. Huge amount of things for Marie Gujon to, to deal with without the support of, of a junior minister. Although Lorna Slater, the Green Minister, has biodiversity and nature scott. And some elements of, of that, when you look at the the list of areas that Miss Goujon has to cover, it's a huge job. And again, without a junior minister it makes me feel that rural hasn't been prioritized by you know by the first minister and his and his makeup of his of his ministers. It's a huge list of ministers. You know, it's a it's a significant proportion yeah. of of. SNP, MSPs who are in that wider cabinet but do you want to pick out a few which are kind of worthy of, of note?
2: Yeah well as you pointed out it's the biggest, I, I read somewhere it's the biggest government since devolution the most cabinet secretaries, the most ministers that any first minister has ever appointed. So that's perhaps an accomplishment.
1: Quality rather than quantity yeah. might, might have been something exactly. that, that Mr Yusuf wanted to, to talk about and that's not disparaging about any of the people that are in there but I'm not sure that having the most is something to be celebrated.
2: Indeed, yeah. And to pile so many uh, pieces of legislation onto one Cabinet Secretary, as we were just talking about, I think, you know, we've got the biggest government ever. Why are so many pieces of legislation and responsibility lying with one person?
1: Exactly. And, you know, and, and and what are some of the others going to be covering in their kind of day-to-day portfolios? And, I mean, they have downgraded some things. So, yeah. you know, Transport is, is now with a, a junior minister... Trying to remember all the housing, housing's junior minister now as well.
2: So we've actually got Kevin Stewart, who's Minister for Transport. We've got people like Paul McLennan, the East Lothian MSP, who's in housing. And yeah, as you see, other junior ministers, Lorna Slater and Patrick Harvey, the, the two green ministers whose positions are guaranteed as part of the Butte House Agreement, their roles completely unchanged. Another thing that's become clear in the last few days as portfolios have been kind of expanded and fleshed out a bit is that tourism will be going to Richard Lockhead and his new title as Minister for Small Business, Innovation and Trade. So just some of the people that, that we'll be kind of looking to engage with, early doors, get meetings in and, and get talking to them about some of the key issues that our members are facing.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I think the, the title for Richard Lockhead is is maybe a bit misleading yeah. because look at the areas that he has these are big businesses in scotland construction life sciences space sector financial services and maybe they feel that comes under innovation but you're certainly not talking about you know lots and lots of smes and some of these maybe you know definitely in construction tourism and hospitality but why the word small you know it's he you not know, just the minister for business innovation and trade again you know what, what's the message that that title is sending to the to the business sector again just a a reflection on how important mm-hmm. um, some of these titles actually are in conveying a, a message to to the business sector.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, Minister for Small Business, what about medium-sized businesses? What about large businesses, dare I say it? It's not entirely obvious where those lie. It does seem a bit odd to single out small business.
1: I, and obviously, we've got the reappointment of the, the, the two Scottish Green ministers. and And interestingly, they've gone back with exactly the same title as they had before again either a lack of imagination from the first minister did I say or as part of that butte house agreement that it may be that those job titles were part of that negotiation and agreement I'll be honest I don't think many Scottish land and estates members will be rushing to congratulate Mr Harvey and, and, and Miss Slater there's a, a real feeling that at, at present they're not working in the interests of of private landlords not working in the interests of, of rural land managers. But you know, but they're back at cabinet, and we'll we'll engage as constructively as we can.
2: Going back, and I think the Butte House Agreement exists to give the Scottish government a majority in Parliament. For political geeks like us, dare I say it? I don't want to target you with the same brushes as, as me. SG, But um, I think there was a time at the, the end, towards the end of the last parliamentary session, where uh, senior cabinet secretaries like John Swinney were facing votes of no confidence. And I think it was an ambition following the the last election when the SNP didn't secure that overall majority that they really, really didn't want to face more votes of no confidence and that kind of precarity in government that comes with running a minority administration. So I think that was one of the reasons that the Beale House Agreement came in. And the other reason, of course, was to solidify a pro-independence majority in government. It is perhaps fair to question whether either of those things are absolutely necessary or remain necessary. I mean, uh, fundamentally, at the end of the day, Hamza Youssef has committed very clearly to the Buttehouse House Agreement. So I see it lasting perhaps as long as he's First
1: Minister. It will be interesting, given the, the kind of the reports in recent days from some of the SNP-backbenchers about dissension, related very much to some of the key elements of, of that Butte House Agreement. So the green numbers might not be enough to make up for some of the SNP-backbenchers who... Don't seem to be entirely on, on board. That's
2: right. It seems like a kind of almost like a the Conservative Party has its European research group, backbenchers, very powerful group of backbenchers um, down in the House of Commons. It'd be very interesting to see if this kind of matures into something equivalent for the SNP. I saw one commentator refer to them as the awkward squad or the squad of 15. So, yeah, we'll see how that develops as well.
1: Thinking about the individuals involved, I don't think any of them will be happy to be compared to the. The, the ERG or to be deemed to be awkward I think many of them just feel that they're standing up for their constituents' interests. Yeah well
2: it's all a question perspective I guess. Yeah
1: and, and, and again back to that kind of you know that shift that we're seeing you you have had a, a long period where dissension wasn't allowed and even questioning the policy and I think one of the things that lots of people might have found surprising if not shocking was Kate Forbes talking about an inner circle so you know, as the, you know, the Scottish version, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, giving away the secret that she wasn't part of that inner circle making big decisions, mm-hmm. I think would be quite shocking for some people in Scotland.
2: I think we're at a point of maturation, and this has been my thinking certainly over the last couple of weeks, that perhaps you know with devolution now approaching the 25-year mark and certainly the SNP and government that have now been there 16 years, perhaps they are evolving and, and maturing in a way that you know, the House of Commons that's been around for hundreds of years perhaps has already attained. And, I, and I, I do wonder if it's about time, if it's not long overdue, that we had backbenchers standing up and asking questions of their, their own party. Again, another criticism of SNP is, as you referred to, it's that kind of sense of discipline and don't rock the boat. And I wonder if that's maybe now coming to an end, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing.
1: No, because I, I do think there's sometimes... It, you know party unity can be achieved without groupthink mm. so in, you know you, you could still be a united party coalescing behind some some key objectives but challenge each other right, on specifics of, of pieces of policy absolutely and, and i i think that's what the you know hollywood's committee structure is set up to do and it's been really frustrating over the last you know last um, few years where You've had SNP members of the committee not challenging the Scottish government in the way that they used to do, you know, four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. And and I think the result of that has been poor legislation. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that we see more uh, constructive challenge, more questions, more collaboration, because I do think through that kind of collaboration, sharing of evidence rather than ideology based approaches, and what will come out the, the other end is is much more effective legislation, um, and I, and hopefully I kind of end to this kind of tribalism that yeah. we we've seen a little bit of, yeah. oh, but not a little yeah. bit of, we've seen a lot of.
2: There's too much of that. Definitely, I think most people would agree. This kind of you're either with us or against us. That's just not how the real world works. I think politics and Scotland as a whole will will benefit um, from a kind of moving on from that.
1: Yeah, and, and I hope it also means that many of the, the junior ministers, as I say, who, you know, a lot, there is a lot of talent there as well, that they have a voice within, within you know, the development of, of priorities, that it's not just a small group deciding what, what's to be done then the minister being told to get on with it.
2: I think and it's very encouraging that Hamza actually said, well, he used the phrase a bigger tent than what went previously. So there's an acknowledgement both from the you know the two kind of the lead contenders in the leadership contest, both Kate Forbes as you mentioned earlier, and from Hamza Yusuf, that the number of people making decisions before was far too small. It was very controlling and very centralised, and dare I say, quite secretive. So I think this broader tent approach sounds good, and I really hope that that is how Hamza chooses to govern.
1: Yeah, I really do hope that you know he sticks to that and he does involve others experts you know from outside his cabinet as well and you know speaks to those who are practitioners who have evidence because again sadly that kind of evidence-based approach listening to people who are affected listening to practitioners there's been a real lack of that I I think recently.
2: We've seen that before where the government claims to have engaged with the sector whether it's in the private rented sector for housing or with the business sector on the deposit return scheme and it turns out that their engagement was they sat down and listened to them or they undertook a, a consultation online and collected some responses. There's no point to listening if it never, ever changes the outcome of, of what you're going to do anyway. Um, so I think we need more genuine consultation and genuine listening and sitting down and getting around the table with business and the rural sector and the businesses that come from there. And at the end of the day, that's what will make better policy.
1: There's that saying, isn't there, that you might be listening but you're not hearing, and that's certainly what many have felt of the Scottish government in the last wee while, and it's certainly what you know we and other private landlords have felt over you know the development of legislation during the COVID crisis. But then, of course, the the Cost of Living Act that saw us try to convince the government about the impact of their legislation, we've now ended up in a case where we are you know, taking the government to court. There's no simpler way to put that. We have a judicial review on going. We're not the only ones, of course. There's a number of these legal challenges in the frame at the moment. So, you know, there's lots on the table for for the First Minister and and his new Cabinet Ministers to deal with.
2: The First Minister must be feeling pretty embattled and kind of under attack from a lot of different fronts. Uh, so his quest, I mean, he's had a bit of a baptism of fire. I don't think he's had much of a honeymoon period, as new political leaders often do. So um, good luck to him. As you say, we always stand ready to work with the government as delivery partners on so many of our shared ambitions. But yeah, he's got a huge, huge task ahead of him.
1: Yeah, and another downside of being tagged the continuity candidate, because I think anyone who came was coming in sort of saying, you know what, I'm about to change things. Would have had a much longer honeymoon period, but you know Hamza was part of that inner circle. He's you know continuity candidate. He's bound to get a, you know a very very hard ride for things which were already in, in motion.
2: He is part of the inner circle. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon phoned him the day before she publicly announced her resignation, and that was a greatly kept secret. And she didn't phone the other candidates, so I think that confirms that he is very much the continuity candidate.
1: Well, Simon, you and I could talk about politics all day, but you know, are there any kind of final messages in terms of you know what does this really mean for rural Scotland? What does this really mean for SLE members? Are we going to see any changes in approach?
2: Well, Hamza Yusuf has said that well, he was very keen to tell us that he was going to do things differently and he wanted to make his own mark. And of course, he did write to us in March before the end of the leadership contest and set out his kind of priorities. And we mentioned them at the beginning of the podcast. I hope that he does use this opportunity, even though he sees himself as a continuity candidate, to have a bit of a reset, to rethink the engagement with the the rural sector and with the business sector. I think he would be foolish not to at least pause and reflect for a few moments and see what could be done better. And I think if he does that, then I think he really could turn things around. There's a great advantage to having a change of leader at the top, it means that you can effectively do u-turns on things which aren't going so well and reframe them as you know taking a fresh approach and um, so there's a lot of a lot of it is about perception but yeah we have to wish them well we have to give them a chance
1: and you know we've talked very much about the the, the first minister and the government but in terms of the, the opposition mm. um are there any changes you know can you see any sort of changes in their approach and that, that might be of benefit to us I
2: think there could be some changes to uh, committees, but uh, you know, perhaps the conveners and, and so on and the committees are, gonna, are largely going to stay the same. But inevitably, with so many people entering government and leaving government, there's going to be changes to things like committees and cross-party groups. So there will be kind of changes in that sense. It'll be interesting to see how the opposition, both Conservatives and Labour, approach their challenging of Hamza Youssef as First Minister.
1: First yeah. FMQs felt a little bit familiar. Yeah. It just felt like a change of the, you know, the person at that, that front desk. And I, I suppose, you know, it, it did feel quite constitutional focused, again, from from all sides. I didn't
2: like it. I thought it was very combative. And I think it was all about the theatre. And I know that, you know, we all, again, political geeks, we know that 99% of what happens in Parliament is collegiate and cross-party working and cross-party lines. And First Minister's question is supposed to be a bit theatrical. It's the one hour of the, the week. That's supposed to be sort of entertaining for the public, I suppose. But I did think it not much was achieved or not much was established in that first hour, partly because it was it had so many uh, disruptions um, from from the gallery. But
1: yeah, but it did feel quite ill-tempered, yeah. and as you say, it felt it, it felt like theatre. And if I suppose if you were a non-political geek and you're kind of thinking, like, what does this mean? I'm going to tune in. I'm, I'm not sure you'd, you'd gone away with a, a warm, fuzzy feeling no. ab- about what the Scottish Government and others were going to be doing to address the things that matter to, to the most of the Scottish public.
2: I've, exactly. There was a lot of finger pointing and and, and shouting. So, yeah, I hope that things kind of settle down a bit in that sense and we can move on to more discussion about policy
1: yeah I think you know you and me both and I'm, I'm sure that's that's shared by others and it's probably shared by everybody in, in the, the the chamber the interesting thing will be to see whether we see at FMQs that challenge from that group of SNP backbenchers that would be a you know very very visible a uh, challenge approach to take or whether it's still going to come from from the opposition so that's going to be one where I think you know lots of people are going to watch how that plays out.
2: Definitely, and it's, a, it's an opportunity for the the rural sector to engage with those MSPs and try to kind of feed into the policy discussion through another avenue. But yeah, I'll be really interested to see how that kind of that that grouping evolves, whether it's a you know, you know a bit of a damp squib or if it grows into something a bit more akin to the pressure group that the Conservatives have. Within their backbenches in, in Westminster. And to be fair to Hamza Youssef, when he was challenged about this backbench grouping, he said he welcomed it. He said that he was looking forward to, to listening to, to more voices and hearing new ideas. So all credit to him for that.
1: Yeah, no, that's good to hear. And, you know, we'll keep members up to date on kind of things that are, are happening. We're already engaging with the, the, the newly appointed cabinet, the ministers we've written to the, the first minister. I think there's going to be lots to share with, you know, with members in the in the sort of weeks and months to come, about any changes in thinking, and it's hard to see how the program for government can, you know, can stay exactly the same as it was announced in September, especially given some of the the new pressures. So mm. that's going to be our, our, I suppose, that's going to be our next biggest clue, isn't it? That sub- September program for government,
2: absolutely, yeah, and seeing whether any of that legislation, especially the the stuff that Marie Goujon as Cabinet Secretary for Rural Affairs, Land, Form and Islands has to deal with, seeing if any of that kind of shifts in, in terms of the timescale for delivery.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, as I say, we could talk about this all all day, but is there any, any final thoughts? Well, yeah,
2: I was going to say the, the thing that I'm really keen to kind of push um, and promote for our members at SLE is to really encourage people to engage with their, their MSPs. So everyone in Scotland has a constituency MSP and I think it's either seven or eight uh, regional MSPs, depending where they live. One of the things that we have that's a real strength and our members have a real strength is the ability to show and not just tell what it is that they're doing on so many of these things from climate to nature, to food production, to housing, to tourism, the hugely diverse businesses that our members run. They're doing some fantastic stuff. And... I just feel that not often enough do we do we shout about it. So, what better way than get a politician? You know, just get the time in their diary, contact their office, and get them out and visit. And if they're wondering, if people listening are wondering how it's best to do that, we've produced a toolkit which is available for SLE members to download from our website. Or if you want, you can get in touch, and we'll be happy to answer your questions. But really, really encouraging people to, to invite MSPs out for a visit and see for themselves what it is they're doing.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think we've seen some some recent successes in terms of, you know, changing people's minds about what they they thought they knew and understood about about the practice of Muirburn in our uplands. And that's by taking politicians out and letting them see it in in, in in practice. And and you know, stories are the other thing, you know, that when it comes to changing people's views for some it's about hard facts for others it's about stories and and, and hearing about the experiences of 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 people in um, in rural communities and that's one of the main reasons that we launched helping it happen mm. you know before it was even awards It was there to to highlight the things that were happening yeah. the good news stories the good news stories that very rarely make the press mm. um because' it's, you know it's it's often the, the the one or two bits of bad news um, happening um, happening in a sector that are are picked up on but those have been so successful Absolutely. in terms of engagement with, uh, with with politicians. When I mean, you and I um, helped sort of man a parliamentary stall last year, and the level of engagement in terms of the helping happen good news stories was 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 really heartening. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, definitely. And we often engage with politicians on facts and figures. We send them briefings all the time ahead of debates. But yeah, the helping it happen awards, the telling of the stories, the more human side of things. This. The qualitative rather than the quantitative, or the subjective rather than the objective, it's really valuable in terms of making our arguments, advancing our interests as a sector, and hoping to do ever more of that.
1: Yeah, no, as you say, you know, a a real call to action to the members to you know not be afraid to get to get engaged, tell their story, and and you're always here to help them with that, Simon. Absolutely. So we are recording this podcast on Wednesday, the fifth of April. And as I said at the start, you know, a week is a long time in politics. Today is proving to be a, a you know, a, a very long day for some involved in, in Scottish politics. I'm hopeful that by the time this airs, the cabinet is still the same as, <laughs> as, as it was. Um, and that we're hopefully in a position to start focusing on future policy, future uh, development, and not still be talking uh, about changes
2: yeah absolutely there's an ancient curse may you live in interesting times at first glance it's sort of seen as a a well-wish but actually when you think about it i think we're we're all fed up of living in interesting times and hopefully now we have a period where things calm down just a little bit and we can get on with talking about policy
1: yeah no absolutely i I think there's there's interesting times and there's scottish political times (laughs) and uh, my goodness
0: they they are definitely interesting at present Thanks to both Sarah-Jane and to Simon for taking the time to share their thoughts in this episode. We do hope members feel secure that we will continue to voice their concerns and triumphs in our political engagement. Of course, if you would like to get in touch about anything you've heard, you can do so via the contact form on our website. If you haven't booked your places for our flagship rural conference on the 3rd of May 2023, there is still time, but don't wait too much longer. The deadline is Friday the 28th of April. The full-day conference, entitled Rural Land Delivering for Scotland, is sponsored by Galbraith and Gillespie MacAndrew, and is a must-attend event for all members. Land reform affects people from many different backgrounds in Scotland, whether you are a landowner, a representative of an estate, a farmer, or from any other rural business. As well as the opportunity to hear first-hand from various experts, this is also your chance to network and meet others from the rural sector. A link to Book Your Place is available in the description of this episode and we hope to see as many of you as possible at our conference at the Assembly Rooms in Edinburgh on Wednesday the 3rd of May. I'd also like to remind you that the Helping It Happen Awards are now open for nominations. We are delighted to have seen some great coverage in the press over the past few weeks as we launched this year's campaign and we can't wait to hear about the great projects and initiatives taking place all over rural Scotland. Sponsored by NatureScot, the Helping It Happen Awards will culminate with a VIP ceremony at the Sheraton Grand Hotel & Spa in Edinburgh this October, where we look forward to celebrating with our finalists on the night. However, before that, our judging panel will need to select our finalists from your fantastic nominations. Entries for the awards can be made via forms on the Scottish Land and Estates website. We recently produced a short how-to video on steps to fill out these forms, but if you need any assistance, please don't hesitate to get in touch. A link to this video is available in the description of this episode, along with a link to our Helping It Happen landing page. Here you can find out more about the awards and send your nominations in to us. You have until the 30th of June to submit your entries, so good luck. As always, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Scotland Matters but if you have any questions, please remember that members of Scottish Land and Estates have access to dedicated support, information and advice over the phone and via email from our policy team. Please feel free to get in touch. In the May episode, we'll be focusing on our annual conference. We'll hear from some of those in attendance, as well as from our new chairman on his vision for SLE. I do hope you'll join us then. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Scotland Matters, the Scottish Land and Estates podcast. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred streaming platform and do leave us a five-star review. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please remember that we have a variety of events scheduled for members throughout the year. Visit the Scottish Land and Estates website for more information on our upcoming lineup and to book your place. Land Business Magazine, our quarterly publication, is also available online now. This is an excellent resource to find out what we've been up to and how we are working on behalf of our members. And finally, if you're not yet a member but would like to find out more about what an SLE membership can do for you, more information about the different membership packages available can be found on our website www.scottishlandandestates.co.uk forward slash membership. Links to everything mentioned can be found in the description of this episode. Thanks for being here.